all kinds of interesting things we discover in a pandemic like this. Someone described this like living in wartime, where you have moments of sheer terror that are punctuated by hours, weeks, and even months of utter boredom. You know, on the one hand, everything has changed. Everything has been disrupted for all of us, our work, our lives, our families, our kids' plans, all of our plans for uh, vacations and special family events, graduations and weddings and things like that. And we have all this downtime. But for a lot of us, there's also a lot of stress that goes with this. If your kid's care plan has been disrupted and all of a sudden your kids don't know quite what to do with themselves or for some people work has gotten more stressful and and they've got more pressure at work because of this circumstance. There's all kinds of challenges that come with these types of change. I know a lot of people are trying to learn new skills and people are showing off their new cooking exploits and or picking up new hobbies during this time. I've one acquaintance who's who's uh, resolved that he's going to learn a new language while he's in quarantine. Other people, you know, we can just kind of go into a passive mode and go on a Netflix binge and just let the next episode keep playing and keep playing. It's also a danger in this time. It is kind of danger, the, the danger that extends beyond just contracting the virus. There's a danger connected with being isolated. There's a danger connected with the anxiety, the uncertainty, and the disruption that many people are feeling. And that's a fertile ground for depression and anxiety disorders to crop up in our lives. You know, a lot of times the way we live our lives is our life is defined by the structure that we've built around it, the work that we do, the hobbies that we do, the social events that we participate in, maybe the causes that we work with. And the question for all of us is when all of those things are taken away, when we don't have work, when we can't socialize the way we used to, when the activities that used to structure our lives have been taken away, then who are we really? Then what are we really? And that's, that's one of the challenges that we face. But I think this is also an opportunity, an opportunity for all of us to, to rediscover who we are and what it is God has created us to be in this world. Because when you take away all the material things that define us, our commutes, our activities, our vocations, our jobs, and our, our calendar plans— you know what's left? What's left is our spirituality, our relationship with God, and our identity as children of God. And so one of the opportunities of this time, while we're maybe falling behind academically or falling behind in work and, and not able to do other things that are a big part of our life, one of the opportunities for you and for me is to go deeper spiritually and to go deeper in our personal experience of what it means to be a child of God and what it means to be a person who is in communion with God through prayer. So with that in mind, I put together a little seven-day prayer guide, and I know in our church and th- among those listening, there are, are 
There's a broad range from people who barely ever prayed to people who pray on a regular basis. But I put together something very simple that will be like an entry-level prayer guide for people who want to go maybe to the next step in their life of prayer. And it, it's a, just a little PDF, and it just gives you a different prayer topic and some prayer prompts for each day in the next seven days. Because I hope that everybody who's listening will use the downtime, will use the disruption, and will use the chaos created by this pandemic to go one step deeper in your walk with God, to go one step higher in your experience of His grace, and to go one step stronger in your knowledge of his love for you. Now today we're going to look at a prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. Incidentally, if you want to go to the next level in your prayer life, one of the best things to do is to look at the various prayers that are found in the scripture that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as as the Bible tells the stories of of various people and their relationships with God and their experience with God. One of the things that the Bible records is the prayers that people prayed and then how people answered them. In fact, it, that would be one way you could study the Bible, just to, to skim it for the key prayers of the key players and then look at how God responds to the prayers that they pray. Throughout the Old Testament, you discover that all of the great people in the Old Testament, it seems, were people of prayer whose prayers were recorded for posterity. And then in the New Testament, especially in Paul's epistles, he's writing pastoral letters to people he cared for spiritually, people who he considered a spiritual, himself a spiritual father to, and so he tells them what he is praying for them. And today we're going to look at one of those prayers. It comes from Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul tells the church in Ephesus what he's praying for them. He says this, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, might give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. And I pray also that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is God's word for God's children this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that as we look at your word, you would show us how we might experience resurrection power through our prayers and how the work of Christ and the resurrection of Christ can become something that's more real to us as we connect to you in prayer. And I pray that this downtime wouldn't be wasted for the children of God who are listening today and that one of the things we might grow in and develop in is our spiritual connection with you in prayer. Accomplish that even as we look at your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our series right now, we're talking about resurrection power and how we can experience resurrection power in every area of our life. And so today I want to talk about tapping into resurrection power through prayer. You'll notice that's the climax of this prayer. Paul says that 
The power of God is for us who believe, and that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. But it starts with this. Paul says, I pray that you would know God better. His prayer for the church at Ephesus is that they would know God, that they would have a relationship with God. But who is it that he wants them to know? He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. And so who he's referring to is the glorious Father. He wants you to go to the next level in your relationship with God as your Father and your personal identity as someone who is known by God as his beloved child. You know, knowing and being known, that's the essence of what makes us human. What we need more than anything is to know God and to be known by him or to, and, or to know people, to know others and to be known by them. That's one of the reasons I think in our modern world for the fascination with celebrity. You know, we might not be celebrities. We might not be great athletes or great intellects or great beauties or full of talent or full of charisma or full of power. But one thing we can do is we can follow the lives of the people who are, and we can celebrate their triumphs and we can jeer them when they fail. So I was thinking about this this, this past week. There was a, a documentary on Michael Jordan, the basketball player who was famous in the 90s. And in the 90s, he was like a rock star. Everywhere he went, he filled arenas. Everybody wanted to see him in person. And there were always receiving lines of people who were desperate to get him to sign mem- memorabilia everywhere he went. And everyone was always asking favors to, for him. And I'm like, you know, this is amazing. The star power that this one individual had simply because he happened to be a great basketball player for a time. And then I thought to myself, you know, why, why is it that people are so fascinated with a person like this? And then, then I asked myself, why is it that I'm sitting here watching a documentary about a guy who was a great basketball player just uh, 20 years ago? And the reason is because we're all fascinated by greatness. We're all fascinated by people who are exceptional. We're all fascinated by people who are brilliant, people who are powerful, people who are virtuous, people who, who, who seem to have something that's profoundly rare. And we want to know about them as much as we want to be known personally. As much as we like to know about other people, we also need to be known. We need to know that there's someone who knows where we are, someone who is listening to our voice, someone who wants to talk with us, someone who is taking a personal interest in us. Because, you know, isolation and quarantine really starts making us beg the question. If no one sees us, if no one knows what we're doing or what we're thinking, does any of it really matter? Because really, one of the things that drives us in life, the drive behind all of the drives is a drive to be known by someone. Drives us to get good grades. It drives us to try to succeed in our career. It drives us to try to look beautiful, to try to be successful, to go out and find romance, even to post the updates on our lives on social media and to read the posts of other people. The drive to to know others and to be known by others is essential to 
our human life. And that's one of the stressors of the quarantine life. That's the, one of the stressors of being shut in and being told that we can't go socialize, that we can't connect, that we can't just go sit down with friends at a restaurant and catch up the way we took for granted just a little time ago. But that's also the opportunity of quarantine life. When we're not distracted by impressing others, when we're not, when we're not able to connect with others, the opportunity for you and for me is to go deeper in our relationship with God. Because it's in our isolation that God meets us. In Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive all of my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. And where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? See, the psalmist realizes that even if he's completely isolated and no one else knows where he is or what he's doing, God knows him, God sees him, and he's in the presence of God. See, to know God is to know that even when you're alone, you're not alone because he is with you. And it's not just God in some impersonal sense. Paul makes it clear right now. It's the glorious father. The Christian life consists at its essence of knowing God as your glorious father and knowing that the glorious father knows you and he's as invested as you he's as invested in you as you are in yourself he's as committed to your well-being and your success as you are to your own well-being your own success he cares for you as much as as anybody he cares for you more than you can care for yourself and he is committed to protecting you he is present with you and he loves you that's what paul needs the people at Ephesus to remember that they might know the God who is with them, that they might know the God who cares for them, and they might know that they are known by God. Knowledge of God, the Bible reveals, comes through his only begotten son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's through him that we know God. As Jesus is praying his very last prayer of his earthly ministry, he says this, now this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, ultimately, eternal life, a life that matters, a life that's glorious, a life that can withstand the ups and downs of the economy and the pandemic and everything else that's going on, comes first and foremost when we know God through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're all struggling in many ways, struggling with the challenges and the disruption that this pandemic has brought into our life. But in the midst of that struggle, my prayer for you, my friends, is that the result of it might be that you go to the next level in your knowledge of God, and that becomes more real to you, more palpable to you, and more present with you and it even becomes something that makes this pandemic worth it to you, makes, makes the struggles and the losses of this pandemic redeemed for you 
as God reveals himself to you and as you become stronger in your knowledge and your relationship with him. So he prays that you would know God. The second thing he prays is that people would know hope, that they would know the hope to which God has called them. I think there's a little bit of a hazard when we read the word hope in the New Testament because the New Testament of the word use of the word hope and our modern use of the word hope are completely different. When we talk about hope in the modern world, we, we say things like, well, I hope tomorrow's a sunny day or I hope the schools open soon so my kids can go back. We're talking about uh, being hopeful is simply being optimistic. It's wishing for a good outcome. But in the New Testament, hope is something that's more firm and secure. It's more akin to what we might feel and what we might think if you wake up at four in the morning and it's dark and you say, well, I hope that by eight o'clock the sun comes up. Or when you're walking through New York City and it's uh, freezing rain outside in February and you say, I hope that the weather is a lot better in June. We know that in New York City, the weather's always a lot better in June than it is in February. We know that as long as we've been alive, as long as, as, as we know history, the sun has generally come up in the New York area by eight o'clock. And so it's not really hope, it's a confidence that things are going to unfold a certain way. And that's what the New Testament means by hope. That's the hope that God calls us to, the hope that he calls us and invites us to live in as his children. Romans 8 puts it this way, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Biblical hope, New Testament hope, is about patiently waiting for what we know will happen, for, for God's work to be completed in us and around us and for our good. Because one of the things I found is, we, as humans, we can endure almost anything if we have hope. We can endure almost anything if we know that it's temporary. You know, there's a big difference between having an illness or an accident or an injury that results in you saying, you know what, I think I'm going to have to spend the next eight weeks or eight months in bed, but then I'm going to make a full recovery and I'll be all right. Big difference between that and having the doctor come to you and saying, you know, you're going to be in bed for the rest of your life and you're never going to make a full recovery. You know, as a pastor, I've been with people on both sides of that coin. And as hard as it is to be told that you're gonna spend eight weeks or eight months in bed, it's devastating to be told that you're never going to be able to walk again, that you're never going to be able to get out of bed again. As long as we have hope, as long as we are confidently waiting for God to bring redemption, we can endure almost anything. And so the Christian life and the thing that gives us endurance, the thing that moves us to make sacrifices, the things that moves us to live with conviction and commitment is the hope. In another place, Paul says that Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day, and our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
You know, Paul talks about light and momentary afflictions. And what he talks about is losing everything, being thrown in jail, being beat up, being taken to Rome, and ultimately being executed. All of those were light and momentary afflictions relative to the eternal glory he looked forward to that was going to far outweigh all of them. But how do we get this kind of hope? How do we come to the place where we live with this kind of hope and where this kind of hope is real to us? Bible says it becomes real to us when we know resurrection power. Look at what Paul goes on to say. He says, you need to know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. A power that's the same as his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You know, the, the cross of Christ assures us of the love of God for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the resurrection of Christ assures us of the power of God for us. That God is able to take the worst circumstance and make it into a glorious circumstance. You know, in this world that we live in, there's a lot of different kinds of power. And most of the time when we think of power, we think of the cheap power, the power that we tend to hoard as humans, the power, physical power, military power, personal power, political power that's mostly used to dominate our adversaries, to, to break things, to blow things up, to conquer, to control, and to constrain people. That's, that's the power that human beings tend to hoard. That's the power that's readily available to strong, strong people around the world. But when Jesus came, he showed the world a different kind of power, a greater kind of power. Not the power to break things and blow things up and control people, but the power to make the lame walk, the power to cleanse the leper, the power to make the blind see, the power even to raise the dead, the power to heal, the power to restore, the power to bring to life, the power to set free. That was the power that Jesus brought. And all of those movements of Jesus, all of those miracles of Jesus anticipated the great expression of power through his life when he rose again from the dead. See, the resurrection is the proof of God's power, and it's the showcase of the way that God works in this world that we live in. There was no more powerless or pathetic or tragic or terrible scene than the scene that took place when Jesus was abandoned by his friends and rejected by the crowds and condemned by the Romans and then nailed to that cross and forsaken by his father. If any scene in history was an irredeemable circumstance, that was certainly it. But God took that irredeemable circumstance, the death of his son, and through it, he accomplished something great. He, he made that into the leading edge of the renewal of all things through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Through the, Jesus took that terrible circumstance of being condemned to death and being forsaken by his father and redeemed it to conquer death and to have all of us experience the embrace of his father, to bring all of us to a place where we could know God as our glorious father, know him personally.
And so the Christian hope in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of humiliating times, in the midst of devastating and uncertain times, comes from knowing this power. See what it says? His incomparably great power for us who believe, for you and me, is the same as the power of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. See, there's another kind of power in this world, another kind of power that we need, another kind of power that we need to seek. Not the power to control, not the power to kill, not the power to dominate, not the power to hurt, but the power to heal, the power to restore, the power to give life to that which is dead. And that's the power of God for us who believe. That's the power that's available to you, and that's the power that can work through you by faith. Now, how do we experience this power? How does this power become real to us in the midst of our day-to-day life? As we look at the world and all its brokenness, I know some of you look at family members who are struggling or hurting or dear close friends who are in tremendously difficult places. I know some of you have even lost friends in the midst of this crisis. Some of you are looking at your own lives, your own family, your own personal circumstance, perhaps your own health or your own job situation, and you feel completely powerless. And in many cases you are. We're waiting for the governor and the mayor and our bosses in the school system to to tell us what we can do tomorrow and tell us when things are going to open up and when we can continue to return to doing the things that we used to take for granted just a couple of months ago. We are powerless. We don't have solutions. We can't solve this problem. But the power of God, the incomparably great power of God, is for all who believe that power that he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And I just want to leave you with this thought. Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. He's praying that they would know God. He's praying that they would have this hope, even when certain things in their life are happening in a way that, that might make them lose hope. And he's praying that they would have this power. And one of the things we learn from that, Paul the Apostle knew that the only way to have this hope, the only way to experience this knowledge of God, the only way to have this power in our life is as we pray for it, as other people pray this prayer for us as well, as other people pray for us to have hope, pray for us to know this redemption, and pray for us to know God in this powerful and transformative way. So I want to challenge you and challenge myself in the midst of this pandemic. Pray for God's power in your life. Pray for God's power through your life. Pray for God's power, God's hope, and the knowledge and the experience of God's love to become something real in the lives of the people that you care about, in the lives of the people that you think about, in the lives of the people that you worry about. Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is even working, even now, working all of these things for a greater good, for a greater redemptive outcome than anything we can imagine. And he invites us to anticipate that and to go through this pandemic as people who have hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your sovereignty. I thank you for your sufficiency. I thank you for your great power, the power that heals, the power that restores, the power that 
springs back to life in the power that fixes the things that are broken. So I pray for us right now in our powerlessness. We can't make plans. We can't get back to work. We can't do the things we used to like doing. We used to, that used to make our lives meaningful. Help us to find new meaning and new hope, new power and new joy as you minister to us by your spirit. Even as we are isolated, Heavenly Father, come and be with us, be at work in our midst. We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.